This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Or like sort of understated or what? This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R102.7 FM. Yes, indeedy. Welcome along to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse, 3 Triple R's weekly one-hour glimmer of hope in a world of madness. We are a future-focused, permaculturally-powered, pontificating... uh, I was going to say... I've just lost P words. (laughs) Piss-taking. Piss-taking. We're a crew of people that are curious and occasionally concerned about how the future might play out. And so we get together each week in the studios here of 3 R and discuss it. Hello, Adam Grubb. Hey, how do you do, Bushy? I do good. Hello, Kent. <laughs> good evening. Do you know who texted me and said they just swum 100 laps at the pool? Who? Sarah Coles. And she's here now! <laughs> she just walked into she's the just... studio. Hello. Colsey, how many Ks are you swimming at the moment? Oh, I've, I've really slipped back. I can only do about five. There you oh, go. I did Was get that up smug to... enough for you, Adam? <laughs> hey, uh, who's our guest tonight, Adam Grubb, all the way from Central Vic? All the way. We've got Kirsten Bradley on the phone, who is one third of Milkwood, which is, well, like, if you, if you know anything about permaculture online, you know Milkwood. They've got, like, followers on Instagram and Facebook by the hundreds of thousands and uh it's permaculture and sustainability education she's one third of it along with nick ritter who's been on the show talking mushrooms before Mm. and their son asher welcome to greening the apocalypse kirsten bradley hi hi guys how are you kirsten is this the first time we've had you i i feel like we had have chatted to you before but maybe i'm wrong um no i think this is this is my maiden voyage awesome welcome aboard welcome aboard yeah. Thank you. Hey, I was, just, I was just thinking something, and I don't want to sort of jump too far ahead, but um, Adam just mentioned that uh, the social media presence that Milk would have, and uh, I'm curious to know, I mean, that's probably a thing that not a lot of people saw coming, and, and I, I dare say you guys were getting into permaculture and regenerative agriculture and, um, and, and, you know, for want of a better word, that sort of downsized uh, lifestyle way before yeah. any of the social media stuff took hold. I just wonder, to what degree, now that it's become a thing, and I'd, I'd love to also talk to some people in a similar place to you, like Patrick and, and Meg from Artists' Family and so on, how, to, does that have any tendency to put pressure on you or to make you, you know, overthink or review your, your actions and, and movements and statements and stuff sometimes, or do you just kind of get on with it? Uh, it's been a really strange journey, actually, up in social media. Yeah, because you're right. We started we started just as Facebook was starting, and we were on a remote farm at the time. So, you know, any sort of way of talking to people that weren't physically near us was a great thing. And um, and then, yeah, when, <laughs> when Instagram started, we were living on a farm with no mobile reception at all. So, um, so yeah, that was... That was funny, but at the time we only knew other farmers on it, so it was a great way of swapping, you know, pest control 
tips and sizes of tomatoes and important things like that. But, um, yeah, uh, I mean, you know, we've just had our first book come out, so we've been doing a lot of social media around, hey, we're doing a book event here, you should totally come. And it's, it's sort of interesting. We're sort of finally using social media for what I think a lot of other people use it for, which is to announce things, partly. Um, whereas before, it's just been like, here's the cabbages, here's my foot. <laughs> Here's my dog, here's my child, we're doing things, what are you doing? It's, it's always, you know, I, I know people have some crazy experiences on it, but, yeah, we've, we've found it a pretty useful space a lot of the time so far, anyway. Mm. It does have that capacity, yeah. Do you want to... We've got to talk about your book, which has just come out, the eponymously titled Milkwood, and it's got five sections on growing tomatoes, mushroom cultivating, natural beekeeping seaweed and wild food yeah and it is i mean it really shows (laughs) i mean this like that i mean just you know how like i mean instagram has raised the quality of just what we consider in a a good enough photograph and um it's definitely one of those books which it's above the bar it's a very beautiful book and it also has oh good yeah well and truly yeah and um, it was shot on an iphone so you know which is a bit embarrassing but the publishers sort of had to work around (laughs) because There wasn't a photographer there a lot of the time. There just happened to be me with my phone in my pocket, so that's how we took the photo. That's yeah. the new normal, I'd say. Well, it came together. Yeah. They dealt with it well. It was good. But why don't we start just um, tell us a little bit of story about... So you you and Nick, you know, because I actually knew you guys when in a former life when we were both sort of... Well, you guys were more arty kind of characters and I was more... Did I know you? I know, but Nick knew you. Yeah, Nick knew me. We crossed paths because we both worked on Ah, um, this project called Ngapaji Ngapaji. Do you remember that? Or you were doing... Oh, you were on Ngapaji Ngapaji as well. Yeah, I made the website, mate. And you were doing the the video for this, um, yeah, arts project which involved Pichinjara language. But we didn't really hang out or anything because we were in different countries. But I knew... But we were doing sort of (laughs) parallel things and simultaneously we both um, went like... Well, for me, it was a, a little bit like learning about, you know, peak oil and um, monetary systems and, oh, is that going to be compatible with, a, um, with, with energy descent or less energy year on year and climate change and all these other things? And I was thinking, well, there's all these up-and-coming people with high-tech skills and I'm going to get pushed out of the market anyway. I better find something more resilient to do. And so that's how I got into permaculture. What... <laughs> Did you come from it from a place of pure fear like I did? And how did you and Nick both manage to get on board the same kind of train and become leaders in a completely different realm? <laughs> um, yeah, if I'm going to be honest about it, yeah, we were living in Melbourne. Um, where Were you in Melbourne at that time? I was. Does that matter? Yes, okay, It's cool. fine, you don't remember. So, yeah. I'm, I'm not hurt. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I totally remember you, Grubby. I remember you very, very well. Um, yeah, we, we probably discovered peak oil at a at a similar point, and that was when, you know, predictions were pretty dire, yeah. and it um, did look like we were all going off a cliff, and we're sitting in our little terrace in Fitzroy, having a lovely time, making art about the end of the world, essentially, and um, and then realised, oh, holy shit. So um, we that was one of the main motivating forces that we decided to decamp to Nick's family's farm, which was in Mudgee, New South Wales, uh, which was, yeah, a um, farm that grew a lot of rocks very well. Mm-hmm. And um, also, yeah, sheep and olives. And we were like, oh, we'll just 
we'll, we'll move to the family farm and we'll build a tiny house because they're really quick and cheap and we don't have any money. And then we'll grow some food and then we'll just keep making art from, you know, this place of family and, you know, comparative resilience, we hoped. And, um, and, and yeah, and sort of take life from there. Mm. So that was the start of it. But we, um, we got sideswiped by permaculture once we got to Mudgee and just got really rabidly involved in in the you know the organic and regenerative agricultural scene in central western new south wales and just started wanting to do everything we could to help you know transform agriculture and other things so ended up in a education and farming space initially yeah it was quite strange it was not planned yeah Mm. from the outside it's and maybe this is a little bit from um talking to you as well it seemed like as much as you downsized um you found yourself running a an events company bringing in you know famous people in the regenerative agriculture space from overseas like joel salatin and um working with pretty big budgets and uh it and almost like creating a quite you know the opposite of the idealistic of the peaceful move to the country live simply even though obviously that comes with its own challenges of all the things you have to do to feed yourself but um how was that transition because it's not it's not the classic one that you imagine no it was it was quite hilarious and again quite (laughs) unplanned um in the in the space where we were there was a real sense and i mean i think we're all getting better at it as australians but this is 10 years ago um especially in the farming scene uh there was a lot of people bringing in experts from other places and that sort of constituted what expert was and so when it came to regenerative and organic agriculture we're like right okay who's the grooviest farmer in the world who's doing interesting regenerative stuff let's convince them to come to australia and teach courses in our wool sheds and then everyone in the mudgee valley may come and then somehow we may be part of a resurgence of you know more land-wise farming and you know those people initially came for not too much money which was good because we didn't have any and there was we may have slightly bullshitted our way into quite a few situations. Perfect. Um, <laughs> but you know, it all sort of sort of worked out. It didn't, you know, it didn't make a what a normal small business person would call a profit by any means. But um, but it had the desired effect from our perspective. You know, a hundred farmers from the area would walk away going, "Okay, I'm going to try holistic grazing. I'm going to look at, you know, what the impact of my stock is having on the land and start thinking about the water table in a different way and whatever." And although we quickly, well, not quickly, over time we moved on from that sort of, you know, rock star farmer approach consciously because, you know, it's, um, I don't think that all the experts are always far away, of course. Many of them are right next door. Um, it was also about, you know, you would get 150 farmers from New South Wales in a room that were all interested in the same thing and they all met each other. And there wasn't that many other things of that type in regenerative farming going on. So that was a real catalyst to a whole lot of interesting relationships and formations of other things because these people were all in a room together regardless of who was up the front talking. So that was really cool to be a part of. It's interesting. It it was, um, Mm. you know, people from the art scene from Melbourne that managed to... Of all things. Yeah. Do anything Yeah, well, I think think it came from an an art... Well, an artist perspective, you know, we're, we're, you know, doing a lot of street art and video art and these things where you don't ask for permission, you just figure out a way to do it. Mm-hmm. You do it, you do a great job, everyone goes, oh my God, that was great. And then you move on to the next project. So we we were quite used to figuring it out and sticking it together without feeling there needed to be a precedent to do it, which was fortunate. Um, and yeah, and Nick had, you know, founded um, some of the This Is Not Art festivals in 
in Newcastle with that oh, mob. Great so festivals. He, he had, a, had a background in making something out of nothing and I did too in other realms. So, yeah, yeah. we just sort of stuck it together. And, and because we were sort of also coming from an activist perspective, we were feeling pretty righteous that this was a cool thing to do and worthwhile. So, yeah. you know, mm. good old gumption. Gumption's good. Happen. Hey, I was just thinking, maybe that maybe that collaborative uh, nature of, of the artist, that sort of rebellious yet collaborative nature of the artist is what those farmers all needed to get in the room together. Um, and I do wonder, like 10 years on from those workshops and those meetings, obviously, you know, bringing in people from overseas uh, into the Australian landscape is uh, it's pretty gutsy because they're going to be looking at it. They're going to be strangers in a strange, strange land. But what sort of feedback have you had a decade on from some of the farmers that first attended those workshops and and took some of those tools uh, out into the paddock? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, lot of people that have just taken the the knowledge and, and run with it in their own way in an Australian context, which has been fantastic to mm. watch. I mean, there's there's probably been, you know a heap that. Um, did something else as well. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, we, we're aware of a lot of farmers. That, and sometimes it was just the pokes that they needed or the or the affirmation that they were on the right track. It wasn't necessarily about changing tack with farming systems or backyard systems. It was more about, like, see, he can do it. I can, you know, I'm on the right track and getting on with it. So, yeah, I think all in all it was a really, really positive experience, although, you know, we sort of got a bit burnt out by it after... <laughs> After a number of years, so yeah. I had to move on and do things a little bit differently. But yeah. And these days, you're at Maliadora, which is the home of David Holmgren and Sue Dennett, who... We are. Lucky us. Yeah, in central Victoria. Uh, and I think you have finally, I'm getting the impression, when I see you, you look less like you're stressed and you look very much more like the the picture of somebody reaching permaculture utopia. I'm glad I've got you, I'm glad I've got you fooled. You're projecting really good. <laughs> yeah. No, it's great. It is great here. Um, life is, is definitely not more boring than it was before. I'm Joel Salatin, known as the Lunatic Farmer, encouraging you to tune in every time you can to the muckraking, compost-loving, cud-chewing, soil-building, water-cleaning vanguard of Urban Hillbilly Radio, greening the apocalypse on Radio 102.7, Free Triple R. We had Rowan Anderson on a couple of months ago, and he'd written an article, which I don't have in front of me, but it was... A blog post saying he was kind of giving up pretend. So Rowan Anderson, he's the author behind Whole Lot of Love, and he was a guy who, for health reasons, went back to uh, living well, well, learnt a more frugal and peasant-inspired lifestyle, which included some things like hunting for his own meat. And he copped a lot of flack on the internet for things like that. And he said the final straw came when someone critiqued him for. Um, relaxing with a cup of peppermint tea. That was, he hadn't picked himself. That he hadn't picked himself and he copped yeah, shit for yeah. that on the internet, yeah. on Instagram. And, um, and he was riling in a blog post, blog post about the, what he called the ethical elite and he was finding people being hypocritical, smug and sometimes not acknowledging that they started with, um, you know, inherited resources and then were judging people that were starting with less, that kind of thing. I think he raised some valid points, but he his conclusion was, um, fuck it, um, I'm just not going to really try anymore. 
You've turned me off trying. I felt more like his conclusion was, fuck it, I'm just not going to talk about it anymore. And he was just, I thought, that's what I took away from it. Yeah. He was just going to get on with it. Like was, we all, like I think we it was all a little bit more for... than that. It was a bit more than that. Okay. Yeah. And and uh, so, and I happened to run into you after that, Kirsten, and um, the next week, and you ha- you were you had a few things to say about it. So I thought, well, why don't we talk? Why don't we bring up that topic? What do you think about this concept of the ethical elite, and are uh, they a problem? Well, yeah, I mean, I do have a lot of thoughts about this. Mm. Um, I think any scene's got its elites, you know, mm. people that are judgy and that sort of thing. But you're gonna you're gonna find them everywhere, you know, whether it's dietary requirements or political systems or whatever, there's always going to be people that, you know, take you sharing your life or you sharing what you do as, a, as an affront or just take it the wrong way somehow. Yeah, um, yeah I, think, I, I think it's a given if you talk about what you do, that's going to be a factor of it. And yeah, I mean, you either get on with it despite it or, or you don't, I guess. Yeah, I think it... There's definitely some parallels to the um, discourse around social justice warriors and people saying that the critiques of that scene or sometimes in people internal to social justice movement will say there's, um, there's incentives for being the person who is the holy, holier than thou and finding the person closest to you to criticise. Um, well, like criticising uh, somebody on the far right is too easy to earn... Um, kudos and right. social capital from. So you turn to the person closest or that you can find conflict with or something to criticise with closest to you because that earns you points in the hierarchy of the system. So yeah. what any any kind of well-meaning thing can have this potential parasitization of, of um, signalling rather than pursuing the goals themselves, I guess, is the critique... Yeah, and I think, you know, some people call that horizontal hostility or something like that around it. It's easier to, yeah, rub up against those closest to you or trying to do similar things to you. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, we've, we've also got a lot of flack over the years for all sorts of things. But, um, mm. yeah, I mean, for one thing, I've, I've found it really instructive and really informative, some of the trolls and haters, because it has shown shown me as an educator who is trying to talk about these these things that I believe in what are people's hot buttons and what are people's misconceptions and what do some people consider you know a bridge too far and what things people lump all in together like all all meat is bad even though what they're railing against is industrial meat or you know there's there's I've always found there's you know it, it, it sucks and it hurts but I've always found there's a lot to learn along the way and it's it's really informed us as a crew as to yeah how to how to better communicate and respond about things that matter a lot of the time which has been pretty interesting yeah there seems to be this other weird thing that happens on social media and i'm really enjoying what you're saying there from from the perspective of taking on board the bullshit of trolls and actually using it as a sort of a self-reflection or self-auditing tool but there's this other and uh, I really hate to quote anything that's come out of the, um, the Golden Merkins era in the White House, but he, um, we, people talk about living in a post-truth world. And you see a lot of this bullshit fire up on social media now where if somebody, somebody might make a statement and then somebody with like a genuine um, competence and a genuine authority upon that topic steps in and says, oh, actually, I need to correct you on a few points here. And then that person gets their back against the wall and goes, no, well, haters going to hate, you know, rah, 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 rah. And 
So I'm just wondering, and again, back to the first question I asked you tonight, now that you're uh, an educator and you're in the public face and you're, you're part of a, a movement, not, I hate to call it a movement, you're part of a, a, a broad church of thinking which is seeking to repair the damage of the last few hundred years of human society um, and you seem pretty tuned into it all and well you are tuned into it all but uh, are you coming up against people who just really want to disagree for the sake of disagreeing you're coming up against that kind of that idiot mentality that is really just out there baying for blood is that a, a thing yeah yeah i mean yeah we do but um you know you sort of i don't know these these days and i i believe in what we do i believe that we all have a role to play in repairing our ecosystems i fundamentally believe that so mm. i'm not i'm not going to be swayed in that belief <laughs> no yeah. um I've, I've learned a lot over the years about you know coming back to a point of finding common ground with those people like you know what do we both want we both want you know less suffering of animals we both want you know we can both agree that we want clean air and clean water for our families and our communities we can agree on these things mm. and then sort of build the argument from there, at least in my own mind, if I don't have the, you know, the energy or the, the typey minutes to, to get it out of me. Mm. But um, I've, over the years, I mean, I think now we, we use that sort of thing as a tool to discuss where we can. If things are really intense or just, um, you know, extremely abusive, that sort of thing, that's not a conversation that I'm going to be able to resolve in an awesome and useful way. No, so on I the just, internet. I, not on the I internet. I leave them. Yeah, 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 and I think you know so much of it is coming from a place of, of fear or or um, feeling that they're not good enough, and you know feel that people are preaching to them because you know look at my tomatoes, you haven't grown tomatoes like me, ha ha ha. But, um, <laughs> I get that. But on the on the, <laughs> on the yeah, other I mean, hand, I, I I don't think that you should that you should stop sharing or stop encouraging people to to make a difference or to do what they can just because, you know, you're getting flack. Well, you know, everyone's going to get flack if, yeah, you, if yeah. you head up and say something. It's, it's past the course. Yeah. But, I mean, that's, that's what making community is, is responding to that as opposed to rejecting or or running away from it. It's, you know, this is, this is the world we're in. We need to engage with it and, and figure it out together. Mm. I feel like there's a good potential with... Um, with what's going on with this social media thing and, and, and this on, you know, the comments threads and the online abuse and blah, blah, blah. And I think so much of it comes from the fact that we went from not being able to communicate with everybody in the world at the flick of a button to being able to do it overnight in a very short amount of time. And in the case of Twitter, doing it with 140 to then up to 280 characters, but basically being able, communicating with ev almost every single person in the country or the Western world or whatever via this incredible device, but without being able to bring emotional tone, um, context, full background story, um, intent, purpose, all that sort of stuff to it. So for myself personally, and I mean, I'm not in the, the spotlight to any degree that like, like you are, but it, it feels like... I what I've taken away from it is an ability to pause for a little longer to fully articulate the statement I'm wanting to make and, and give that context to it. And I think, in, especially when you're talking about regenerative ag stuff or, or permaculture things and, and design of uh, living systems and human systems and stuff, I think that context and background and fully articulated argument is everything. Mm, yeah, no, I, I agree. And I, yeah, I mean, you can... We all get knee-jerky and we all make mistakes. We all get upset at stuff that really doesn't matter occasionally. But I think, I don't know, 
But for me, when I'm on social media and, and it's all making me feel like that, I, I need to come back to sort of first principles and, you know, respond with, okay, so you can't do this and you're feeling like you should do this or you're feeling that I'm saying that you should do this. That, that's not what I'm trying to say. If you want to do something, what, what can you do? Like, figure out what you can do. Don't think about what you can't do or what you should do. Mm. Like, if, if, if we can agree that we want to move this forward or we want to make better communities or healthier kids or healthier us or whatever it is, what can you do? And sort of encourage people to start at that place rather than try and, you know, fight them in the trenches, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. I mean, shame is a pretty powerful motivating force. And I mean, on the one hand... <laughs> It's one. Of, it's not one of your favourites. No, it's not my favourite. No. Oh, well, I mean, maybe you should dabble. But like, it, <laughs> I, I mean, societally, there's certainly like all sorts of things where it's the fear of shame, and I mean, that's largely what Me Too is trading on, and um, where it it can be a force for public good, even though it can take some casualties with it. Um, I, and yet, I feel like if you're acknowledging what one thing that I did think Rowan's made made, a point he made well was just acknowledging that if you have certain advantages that allowed you to simplify your life on a fast track and maybe have more education or more resources that judging down and shaming people with less opportunity and and um being yeah clicky about it that's obviously going to be dysfunctional and going to turn people against you and absolutely it is yeah. yeah but i still think shame is great (laughs) <laughs> in the right context, and society needs it. Just a little, just a little bit of it sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but, I mean, most of us that are blogging do have an incredible amount of privilege. Most of us, you know, in Australia that are on social media, if you like. With a computer. You know, there's, yeah, there's all sorts of inherent, you know, white privileges, white male privileges in Rowan's case, that are they're inherent to his context as well. So, I don't know, I just... I. We, as educators, we've always tried to operate from a place of encouragement. I mean, that's why we wrote wrote the book that we've just written. It's like, how can we make this information really welcoming and accessible and people can see it as a doorway or as a gateway into trying to help each other and themselves and try new things and get involved in new stuff? And how can we make that really welcoming rather than sort of you should do this or you should do that or you're unsuccessful? in your homesteading journey because you have not yet achieved these things. And you are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on 3 Triple R. Our guest this evening from Milkwood is Kirsten Bradley. They got a new book out. Um, and it's named it's called Milkwood. Kirsten, it basically takes five topics um, and having gone through it it seems to provide every piece of information upon those five topics um which is pretty awesome i was looking through my bookshelf the other day at the you know the dozens and dozens of books i've got which have like a page or two here on this thing and a page or two here on that thing but you guys have have refined it down and you've covered tomatoes mushroom cultivation natural beekeeping seaweed and wild food foraging just wanted to ask what was it that um about those five particular topics that made the grade for this book yeah, right. So it's um, it's hopefully the first of a series of these types of books that have five chapters each. And yeah, there was there was a bit of you know arm wrestling and serious discussions about what should be the first five topics. Um, we started with five things that we love to bits and pieces um, that are all dear to 
you know, both Nick and my heart. And also ones that we thought, you know, partly uh, alluring technique. We want people to get excited about these, what we see as more accessible topics and then lure them into the world of things like humanure and goats and, you know, crazy things that they may not have realised they wanted to know all about until they read 60 pages on it and realised how awesome those things were. So it's, yeah. Humanure for those that have never heard that word. Uh, We can let it go. Well, no, I guess we should unpack it. <laughs> yeah, quickly unpack it. Human manure, Adam, is well. It's, t- it's using human poo, and it's it's what, it's what our good friend from a composting toilets. Oh, we've had Andy Tannehill. Andy on the Tannehill. It's yeah. turning human poo uh, from a horrific uh, energy dense waste product into a marvelous. Uh, well, it turns it back into soil, like the old. Saying goes, "I was flat as a shit carter's hat." It's like the old shit. <laughs> but carter. that is not in this book. This not book is this book. more it's entry not level. Yeah, very entry level. Yeah. yeah, we will lure you in. That said, there's plenty of things in there I want to learn about. Um, yeah, seaweed and natural beekeeping and mushroom cultivating. <coughs> I would like to know more about all those things. Um, I did notice that you jumped straight into those topics with only a tiny page or two of introductory information a lot of books would tell you why every why the world's in danger or why your life can be so much better if you do these things or just all this intro is there um and it made me think about the catholic church who have an ethos of um just get people going through the motions and sitting down and putting their their hands in front of them and pretending to pray because they're embarrassed not to and before they know it they believe it <laughs> is there something similar are you using yeah, deep psychology getting people just doing stuff and before they know they're wrapped up in your your um your your ideological web Oh, well, my, my very atheist parents are going to love that one. That is so great. <laughs> um, I, yes, I guess so. Hmm, Good answer. <laughs> <laughs> you can pass. It's, it's about, to, to us again, it was about gateways and welcoming people to this, this kind of knowledge, the idea that you can start doing one thing and, you know, like growing tomatoes or beekeeping or finding some seaweed on your local beach and how understanding that and getting excited about that can lead to more daily habits or regular things that you incorporate into your life that before you know it you're actually asking some pretty big questions about the future of your watershed or Mm. your local food system or whatever it is that you know matters to you in your context um Mm. i think you know all these all these topics are, are wonderful they're not for everyone um, some people really get into one thing. Some people might get into all of them. But they're all they're all fascinating and they're all fantastic. And, I mean, things like the natural beekeeping, you can't read our beekeeping chapter and be completely ready to go on beekeeping because there's a lot more to it than 60 pages. Mm. Before I, I met Adam, like, I don't know, six years, however long ago it was, um, I, I just can't remember what it's like now to not know, you know, 10 or 15 edible um, wild plants, you know, but... But you pick up a book like this one or, or Adam's book and you start to go through it and, and there, suddenly it's just become a thing that you do and you can't remember what it was like not doing it. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's the plan. And we're only a few generations off either inherently knowing or knowing someone who did inherently know this stuff. And, I, I, you know, I think it's, it's awesome to give people the opportunity to reclaim some of these skills and reincorporate that into just boring old daily life that they know what dandelion looks like and it goes in the salad sometimes. You know, we're all at different starting points and as you were saying before around, you know, privilege, some of us are 
some of us have a nice life and we can spend lots of time bottling tomatoes and some of us are working night shift and have three disabled children and we cannot bottle tomatoes but you know there's we, we can all we can all do something we can all start somewhere and a lot of these little things that we can do can really enrich our lives and our families and our communities long term and yeah it's it's all good doesn't matter where you start indeedy can we go to a topic within the book that we've actually never touched on on the show before? Sure. Um, seaweed. Oh, we did have pretty. Tim Flannery talking about why we could grow lots of it in ocean floating platforms to try and save the world's climate. That's we have true. not talked about eating it. We haven't talked about eating it, no. Um, so, yeah, so eating seaweed, I mean, that's familiar to anyone who's ever gone down and had a little sushi uh, or nori roll at the, at the sushi bar. But... Um, let, let's just unpack that a bit. Is it, how, do you, how do you get started? I mean, if you, before we get into you know, some of the more finer details, are there some underlying ethics and morals or even laws surrounding seaweed harvesting? I mean, let's just break it down to Victoria, for example, or, or Southeast Australia. What are a few things you would need to know to get started on that before we get into sort of identifying them and all the other yeah, stuff? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so um, laws and regulations differ where you live. So we, we tried to stay broad in the chapter, but also said, you know, check your local regulations. Um, in, in New South Wales, you can harvest in most places up to 20 kilos a day of beach calf seaweed, which uh-huh. is seaweed that's washed up on the beach, which, you know, is heaps of seaweed. But anyway, those are the New South Welsh people up there. Mm-hmm. In... Um, in Victoria, it differs from council area to council area um, because in Australia we don't have an intact cultural history of seaweed. I mean, we've a lot of us hail originally from continents that had, you know, a huge reverence for seaweed where it was incorporated into daily life and farming and, and the kitchen and everything else. Um, somewhere along the line, we lost that in Australia. So um, there isn't in Victoria even very strong regulations about what you can and can't do in a lot of places. Like we were talking to fisheries department, I talked to four different people in fisheries and the sort of the average response I got was yeah, you can take a few shopping bags a day. It's pretty kind of nondescript. Yeah, it's pretty vague, yeah. Beaches, which, which indicates, you know, where we're at with this wild resource. It's, it's a bit like where um, wild mushrooms were about, you know, 10 years ago or so. I think everyone was like, oh, don't eat them, they'll kill you. They will. But, you know, now there's a lot well, more knowledge Asterix, around... they very well might, <laughs> if you don't know what you're doing. Yes. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot more cultural knowledge about, you know, that, that one's cool, that one's not cool. Um, if you're not sure, go find someone who knows and yeah. go with them. And I, I'm hoping that seaweed will, you know, have that revolution, if you like. Soon. But, um, I mean, there's some councils in Melbourne, like the, um, the the council that Altona is in, the council's name is... Hobson's Bay. Hobson's Bay, thank you very much. Um, and because they have an excess of seaweed on their beaches, which they're scooping up and putting in landfill, which creates lots of methane and other nasty things that we don't want, they encourage people to take as much as they want oh. on their beaches, mm. which might be great for your garden, may not be so great for eating, given mm. the industry around yep. that area, but... Again, it's really, really variable. So you do need to you do need to check with where you live or where you're going. Mm. You can't harvest anything in a marine reserve. Obviously, yep. it's a marine reserve. Yeah, not yeah. even introduced species. Um, yeah, well, actually, I'd have to check on that. Yeah, I wonder. Yeah, mm. apparently, apparently you can't go harvest the oysters, even though they're 
they're uh, invasive right. species. Yeah. You just touched on something then, Kirsten. You, you said beach cast seaweed. I'll assume that means it's washed up on the beach. It's disconnected from its... Um, That's correct. From its yeah. So is, is so in the book, it, it looked as though you were talking about harvesting both uh, the beach cast seaweed and live seaweed. Is uh, yeah, so I mean that that gets me thinking. Like, how do you how do you check either one of those for suitability and freshness? Like, I, I'm very familiar with the coast of Phillip Island and and the Mornington Peninsula and that. And um, you know, I've like anyone who's ever gone surfing down there, I've become entangled in some kelp <laughs> in the shallows. Um, yeah. But you know, is there is there much of a difference you know, if the, if the kelp is still getting washed around in turbulence versus the the kelp's been washed up, you know, for a week or so? Uh, how do you check its suitability for consumption? What sort of things do you look for? Yeah, well, you sort of follow your nose to a great degree. I mean, a lot of kelp that's, that's you know, that's been cast off its hold fast but is still in the water, it's likely to have just come off and it's still making its way to the beach. So it's probably going to be fresher, but sometimes it gets pulled back in to the water. So, you know, I mean, if you pick up a piece of seaweed, it's usually pretty obvious if it's slimy and it's, you know, starting to go really weird colours and it doesn't look very tasty then it's probably, you know, getting on and might be great for your garden but not so great for your kitchen cupboard. Whereas if it looks, you know, plump and firm and it, it it's not slimy, it, it looks like a live seaweed but it's not attached to a rock, then that's probably going to be much fresher stuff. The yes. good thing is that there's no real downside to eating kelp that's a bit old anyway. So it's, you know, it's not going to hurt you or anything. You might just taste a bit funky. Okay. That's good. If it's cooked, presumably. There, if it's there's, cooked. A, there's a whole lot of... Um, there's a lot of different seaweeds mentioned in the book. Are, are any seaweeds that we're likely to find in Victoria poisonous? Apparently not. From the seaweed experts that I have consulted, there is one toxic but not strictly poisonous, whatever that means, mm. in um, seaweed in Western Australia. Okay. But there's nothing in the south or the east. That's pretty amazing. Anything unsustainable. So you can just go to the ocean and because sometimes just bits float past you. I read this in Tim Lowe, but who does uh, Bush Tucker books amongst other yep, things, yep, yep. and he said, "Yeah, back then you could eat anything that didn't taste peppery or bitter." But um, it sounds like you're saying it can be even broader than that. But just based on what he said, I have you know just swimming in the surf, there goes a little bit of something red, taking a bite, no hands. Yeah, and it's and so far it's been quite an, a gastronomically pleasurable experience <laughs> with yeah, no I mean, side it effects. Comes down, it comes down to a lot of to palatability with the macroalgae yeah. of seaweed. Yeah, some some are tasty and some are like, mm, well, that's <laughs> interesting. <laughs> Room for improvement. <laughs> yeah. How do they stack up in terms of nutrition? I know that uh, when we've talked in the past on the show about um, foraged wild weeds and things that some of them are, are very very nutrient dense although not calorically dense um uh i would say but uh what how do seaweed stack up in terms of nutrition seaweed stacks up pretty darn well it's i mean apparently there's some seaweeds that contain nearly every element in the periodic table because they are um absorbing the nutrients from seawater which apparently does there's some i'd rather not have. Does that include mercury yeah, and uranium? Yeah. <laughs> it depends on what sort of trace amounts, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah they're they're typically extremely nutrient dense. Um, I mean, they've got a lot of alginates and things like that in them. Um, Are they oils? It does depend. Not so much oils, no. Um, it does depend on the species. Um, yeah, I mean, they're, they're they're pretty good stuff. If you've ever dried some seaweed, you know, you'll take something that's say a kilo in weight and it will dry down to 
100 grams, 50 grams, but you, you do realise at that point exactly how much water there is. Uh, mm. You know, in terms of what actually is in it, it's, um, it's reasonably small. But, but the flavour that yeah. you get in dried products like that, I mean, in Japanese cooking, you know, mm. there's at least four common seaweeds that are used, all with different uses, all with different flavour profiles, and they can just make a, a, a meal sing, like... Mm. Not literally, yeah, but quite. <laughs> turn it just into something a, amazing. It's the same with Australian seaweeds. There's a lot that you would find quite commonly, which, you know, if you find a fresh bit and you're somewhere where you're happy to forage it, you can take it home, stick it on your washing line. It'll be dry within a day. Chop it up into bits, stick it in a jar, then chuck it in your next round of soup or stews or stock or whatever. Yeah. Um, you can start there. And before you know it, you're getting all excited about all the different ones and yeah. sea lettuce and harvesting and doing all sorts of things. And then you can add uh, any of the, the the waste stream of that seaweed back into your soil through composting and get again like those seaborne minerals. And which is taking yeah, it's it's one yeah. way of getting the nutrient flow, which tends to go with gravity out to ocean, out to the ocean and never come back again. But uh, we can yeah. we can get it and bring it back up and create nutrient cycles. Awesome. I really appreciate having it as, as part of our of our you know our food system here in Central Victoria. There's not a whole lot of things that we're you know buying or eating from the coast, but yeah. seaweed's something that I'm I'm extremely happy to go and grab and mm. bring onto the farm in terms of you know all sorts of nutrients and trace elements and all sorts of things, both mm. in the garden and in the kitchen. I love it. Kirsten, uh, quickly give the book a wrap. Yo, you can either get a copy of Milkwood from either milkwood.net/book or from your local independent bookstore. Right on. Thanks heaps for uh, being on the phone to us this evening, Kirsten. Thank you. Thank you for the panel beating Ken. Adam Grubb, love looking at your face. Back at you. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.